Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. That email address is below. It is askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Feel free to send me any and all questions you might have about Scientology, critical thinking, destructive cults, mind control, anything else, Star Wars, and I will be more than happy to put it into my question queue. And uh, every week I kind of go through those and sort of look for, you know, things I might find uh, interesting, maybe questions that go together well, etc., and put a show together. So thank you very much for those of you who have been waiting patiently for me to answer some of your questions, some of you for a very long time, getting to them as fast as I can. I wanted to uh, plug the podcast that I posted this last week. It was with Seth Andrews, and it was a great conversation he and I had about some ideas for 2020, some looking back at some mistakes that we've made and uh, regrets we have and things we're thinking about with humanism and, and approaching life from a more compassionate, tolerant point of view. So if you're at all interested in any of that, uh, then check out that podcast. I was a little surprised, actually, we didn't get more of a response on that. And it was on Christmas, of course, so whatever. Uh, okay, and then I want to say that this is our New Year's episode. This is this is uh, episode 243 of Critical Q&A. And this is the final episode for 2019. So this next week, you will also, if all goes well, you will also see a midweek podcast for New Year's. And I will be doing my, I think what is now traditional, I think I get to say traditionally, an end of year uh, review. So we will post that and, uh, and you guys can see that this week. Uh, again, if all goes well, I mean, you know, short of some disaster. Okay, and this is the last chance in 2019 for you to sign up to be one of my patrons. So check out my patron link uh, below, patreon.com slash chrisshelton. And uh, there you go. Let's get on with your questions now. Tom Willett, I curiously went onto the Scientology website tonight and they were advertising the eight dynamics. It seemed more like an advertisement for a Hollywood-esque lifestyle marketing company with perfect, beautiful families in lovely suburbania. How much does Scientology market itself as an upscale, posh lifestyle choice over a religion? Oh, Scientology markets itself almost exclusively as an upscale lifestyle choice than as a religion. If they had their druthers, I don't think that religion would be even any part of it. The only reason why Scientology has to keep talking about its religiosity and has to keep harping on that, is, and especially in courts of law, is because it affords them legal protections that they absolutely have to have in order to continue to survive at all. Uh, tax exemption, for example, court recognition that gives them leeway with uh, labor laws. First Amendment, you know, gives grants all kinds of leeway to abuse your membership. In the United States, you can get away with that scot-free if you have a religious exemption sort of claim. And I don't, there are, you know, there's, there are lines to that. There are limits to that. But Scientology, so far, has almost uni universally and and uh, almost 100% gotten away with every instance of child abuse and sexual molestation against minors that has ever been committed within the Church of Scientology. So even me saying, well, there are limits because children, when children are involved, then the government gets involved and the FBI gets involved and, and there's public outcry and all that, except is there really? 
you know? I mean, if we're really going to talk Turkey, then, um, you know, we're going to look at how much has the Catholic Church gotten away with, with their pedophile rings and relocation service, how much has Scientology gotten away with? Scientology's gotten away with all of it. And that's because of, to a great degree, that's because of the um, religious protection and also the religious community. Because Scientology benefits from the advantages that the Catholic Church has been making for decades, centuries, uh, in legal arenas, right, where they have, uh, you know, made things work out where the police and the authorities and stuff, oh, it's a church, it's, you know, oh, it's the, it's the bishop, it's the rabbi, it's the priest, it's the, you know, heavenly father, it's whatever title you want to use out there that gives them some sort of idea in the general public's mind that, that ministers, priests, rabbis, uh, religious organizations as, as organizations are raised on a dais of, of, you know, a holy dais of integrity and honor and, and honesty. And we have learned the hard way uh, in real life with real evidence. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, back in the past. I mean, right here and now, we know that that is pure poppycock. It's just nonsense. There, there, there is nothing special about a religious figure. There is nothing that holds them in any position of uh, greater authority than any other leader or cult leader that we name. I actually had a whole talk with Marcy Hamilton in a podcast I did about um, that where, where this came up. So anyway, I'm kind of harping on that for a second because it occurred to me. But in, in terms of your question, getting back to your question, uh, sorry for my little divergence there. Um, Scientology is all about making the able more able. That's their tagline. We're here to make the able more able. So what does that mean? What's that code word for? Money, right? Power, influence. That's the able. The able are the people who are moving the gears and levers of society, not the ones who are being moved. And Scientology wants to appeal to those people. The whales of society, the, the, the people who have got a whole lot of money, right? Like the whale, that term comes from Vegas where, you know, big fat cat comes into the, comes into the uh, casino and they're like, hey, we bagged a whale, you know? Like there's a, there's a lot of money to be made there and that's what Scientology is looking for. So uh, that's why they make all of the marketing materials are all about affluent, rich, upper class people or the appearance of that. They do market to a lower class demographic that it's a younger demographic and they go hard after that demographic as well. But they go to that demographic by promising that they will be able to climb the social and economic ladder by applying Scientology principles, the, the toolkit that Scientology gives you, quote unquote, is supposed to enable you to become even more able, right? The making the able more able. <laughs> it's prosperity gospel. I mean, and it's just, a, you know, it's, 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 uh, th that's really what it is in a, in a different disguise, right? If you do Scientology, you will be successful. If you apply Scientology exactly, you can't help but succeed. It's, it's classic. And that is where uh, Scientology's direct, any marketing efforts that Scientology does engage in, because they're not really a whole lot, given, given what they could be doing compared to what they, the potential of what Scientology could be doing to market itself, they do almost nothing. But what they do, you know, that's, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty tuned for that. So there you go. Beth M. I know you have been having an issue with YouTube demonetizing some of your videos. 
Does it help you if we watch the entire commercial or just click the skip ad button? I'm sure many people would happily watch the commercial if they knew it would help you. I'm not sure how that works for YouTube. Okay, so I am in no way, shape, or form with this communication to you guys encouraging you to do one thing or another. I have to be very clear about that because YouTube policy, as I understand it, uh, is very clear about YouTube content creators not encouraging their uh, followers or watchers to be sitting there, you know, doing click baity stuff or trying to get clicks or something, okay? So that's not the effort that I am making here, and that's not even a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sarcasm sort of statement. I really mean it, okay? I'm just giving you information right now. Uh, but I had to put that whole disclaimer on it. Now, that all being said, um, the way advertising revenue works in YouTube at a basic simple level, uh, like my channel, it's very the most basic simple level there is, is I sign up to become what's called a YouTube partner. And after I get 10,000 uh, or 1,000 subscribers, and I think it's 10,000 watch hours or something, or 1,000 watch hours, it's a, it's, it was a surprisingly large number, um, then I get to become a YouTube partner. Well, I did that years ago on this, this channel, and I have a YouTube, I have a Critical Clips channel, which just has a little short clips, extracts from all of my videos, and that's been going great guns. So that channel is now monetized. That only happened a couple months ago. So, um, so what you guys have to do in order for me or a content creator on the platform to get revenue from the advertisements that you see on our videos is you have to click on them and, and, and watch them. And I don't know, because it changes from, you know, from time to time, how long you have to watch it or, you know, what you have to put up with. That I'm not going to say. I mean, it used to be 15 seconds, but I've heard it's changed. It's got, you know, it's, it, it's so I'm not going to quote, I'm not going to give information like that because I don't know for sure one way or the other. But I do know that for me to get ad revenue on any ads on my channel, you got to click on them. And uh, that's how that works. And it's pretty simple, really. Um, and then, of course, the the uh, ad revenue uh, is um, is also it's, it's, see when I say my videos have been demonetized. Let's be clear. Let me let me clarify something. Also, that doesn't mean I'm not making any money off of them. It actually means that the video has been marked as limited advertising. And that means that the number of advertisers who are going to be willing to advertise on my channel has become much smaller, the pool from which they can draw those advertisers. Clearly, Scientology is okay with advertising on channels like mine still because we still see Scientology ads pop up from time to time. Um, the other ads that you might see on my videos, you'll see ads on all my videos, and, and that's the reason why, is none of them have been like... Um, totally demonetized where I can't make any money on it. The only ones that that is true for are where I have used, where my where I was doing movie reviews and I was using copyrighted uh, movie, you know, clips in the movie reviews. And whenever I did that, they marked it as, they marked it as copyrighted and the money goes to the, the copyright source. So I don't know that I even monetized or tried to monetize those videos. And if you don't try to monetize them, then it's, you know, that's no big deal. There won't be ads on them, and they at least they won't be any advertisements on them that are helping me out. And, you know, that's that. But those are just the movie reviews. I think every other video I've put up, or almost every other video I've put up, I've had monetized. So, um, 
A whole lot of them have been marked now as limited ads. Um, this happens constantly. I don't, you know, I don't even tell you guys all the times it happens because it would just drive you crazy, just like it drives me crazy. And um, and it's at, at this point, you know, I'm I'm just kind of in the okay. Well, this is the way that content creators have to. This is what we're going to have to deal with, and just putting content up here and hoping you guys like it, and just keep trying to put quality content up there. Because at the end of the day. The thing that I am most, most, most concerned about with my channel is that the content is something that you guys want and that you want to watch and that the broad and, and that hopefully I'm building, you know, content that will build a broader audience. I want to move out of this very tiny niche of Scientology watchers and I, you know, which is much I'm not complaining about. I've built this channel on that and it's a good base of things to build on. Okay, so there's no complaints here at all. I'm just saying that. I want to build up more, and that's why you see me talking about broader topics, posting podcasts with, you know, former Jehovah's Witnesses and former Mormons and other members of other groups like the whole Nithyananda cult and uh, Sarah Landry's interviews and, you know, stuff like that. So you're going to just get through 2020 and on, you're going to see more and more of that because that's where my interests are going and that's what I think is, you know, what my channel should be doing. So I didn't really mean to get into the hot hole tack. And we'll probably talk even more about some of that uh, in the um, New Year's podcast. So anyway, there you go. Kiwi Forever. In one of your recent videos, I think it was one with the ex-Mormon guy, you mentioned that around 75% of people on the RPF end up leaving. My question is, how do they leave? Do they blow or do they simply go up to someone in authority and say, I've had enough, I want to leave? I'm curious about how simple this process is. What effort does Scientology put into stopping people from leaving? Legally, they can't stop you from leaving, but I'm sure they will use all kinds of threats to get you to stay. If you leave the RPF, are you out of the Sea Org slash Scientology for good? Are you automatically declared and disconnected? Finally, how do you physically leave? As I understand it, the RPF is in the middle of nowhere. Does RPF management give you a lift back into town? Can you call someone to come and get you? Or are you left up to your own devices? Okay, RPF, um, videos and videos and videos worth of content, just talking about and breaking down the RPF, the big topic. And um, yes, I do still intend on eventually writing that book about it, and I've got tons of notes and stuff on that. Um, but in the meantime, I will answer questions like this because I thought that this would be useful and important to clarify a few things for you, Beth, and maybe the viewership out there. First off, the RPF is not located in the middle of nowhere. That, that's not how the RPF works. The RPF is always on a Sea Org base. Always. In fact, almost all of your time on the RPF is on that base. Only if you are bussed somewhere for a special project or action, uh, like, for example, setting up for a New Year's event at the Shrine Auditorium, we get bussed out there, and then you get bussed back to the base. And that's where you live, that's where you sleep, that's where you eat. Um, so, so it's not out in the middle of nowhere, and, and I, it, maybe that's the confusion between what the RPF is and the whole, uh, which they've talked about at ad nauseum in media. That is uh, David Miscavige's special project that he set up at the Int base in um, San Jacinto, California, and that's where they got the, you know, the, the razor wire and all that stuff, and, and they've, uh, this is called the gold base or the international base or the international gold base. And that's where they have these beautiful properties, and it's way out in San Jacinto. 
um, there is no RPF there. There used to be up until the er very early 2000s or the year 2000 maybe, um, just a bit after that, and they, they moved that whole RPF to Los Angeles where the big blue buildings are, and that's where I worked, and that's where I did my RPF. And I was on the RPF, I think it was 2004 to 2008 uh, time period, and it was about three years, three months, something like that in that time period. And, um, and I spent my entire time on the base. Right? That's where you're sequestered. The RPF is a sequestered activity. All the people who are on the RPF are located together. They sleep dorms together. There's a woman's dorm and a men's dorm. There's no married couples on the RPF. Even if you're married and you go to the RPF with your wife, you guys are not acting like man and wife when you're on the RPF. There is no kissing. There's no connecting. There's no none of that. You literally have to treat each other as though you're just fellow Sea Org members. Uh, of course, that doesn't happen. But, you know, they're not sleeping together. They're not having sex. They're not acting like publicly there is no married couple uh, activity there. Okay, getting a little into the minutia, let's get to your question, which is how do you leave? The RPF is left just like the Sea Org is left. You go and say, I want to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do this. And, um, and then they'll sit you down and get, okay, what's going on? Why? They write it all down, give you an interview. Um, you know, they might just tell you to shut the fuck up and carry on, right? I mean, that, that, you'll get that kind of treatment for a little while, or you could. There's so many variables to this. It's not like every single person's had a uniform, similar experience. So, I, so it's always a little hard to talk about this. I have to talk in broad strokes a bit. Um, but they, there will be an effort, almost uniformly, there will be an effort to try to talk you out of it. Uh, that'll come from the RPF in charge, who is not somebody who is on, who is doing the RPF. He's a Sea Org member who is in charge of the RPF. That's his. That's his post. That's his job, and his. And so he'll oversee everything going on with the RPF, and he does not direct every single RPF or on every single thing they do. He is. He's overall in charge of the program. The RPF has a has a has a sort of a leadership structure that has a bosun and a deputy bosun and there's a half over here and half over there and there's a there's a whole hierarchy and stuff to it and when you first get in there you got to start you know moving up the ladder um so the rpf i see as a person right is right in charge of the rpf bosun and that's usually the person he's coordinating with but if somebody comes up is wanting to leave well, RPFers might try to talk that person out of it, but ultimately the RPF I see is going to be the one who's going to be having talks with him. Because of Sea Org policy, Sea Org members who are on the RPF can't talk to or originate communication with people outside the RPF, just the RPF I see. Um, so it's not like the person's, so it might be actually that if the person's married, the spouse might come over and coordinate with the RPF I see and they might talk. They're going to have to one way or the other because if the person leaves, he's going to be getting and, you know, he or she will be divorcing their spouse if they're married. So those conversations will have to happen. And those will probably be encouragements to stay, stick it out, get through it. Come on, be a Sea Org member, be tough, you know, that kind of thing. We're clearing the planet. Rah, rah, rah. Um, beyond the talking, talking the person out of it process, the next step is like every Sea Org member or Scientology staff member who asks to leave, they're going to get sec checked, a security check, and that's going to be done by their twin on the RPF. When you do the RPF, you work with another RPFer. Your job is to make them better. Their job is to make you better. 
So uh, when you're on the RPF, it's not about you getting better, it's about you making somebody else better. You gotta prove you can actually help somebody else. That's the, that's the rehabilitation point of the RPF. So you get rehabilitated, but the real point of it is for you to help somebody else out. Okay, so, um, so your sec check's gonna happen. So your twin or somebody on the RPF, if you don't have a twin for some reason, uh, is gonna sec check you and they're gonna give you a series of questions that you're gonna have to pass on the e-meter and you're gonna have to get off all your crimes, all the horrible, awful things you've been up to because Hubbard said that you cannot leave, you would not wanna leave if you had not um, done bad things. So uh, in other words, committed overts is what they call it, right? They've done bad things. So you got sec checked and you get all cleaned up on that and if you still wanna leave, because some people change their mind during that process. Uh, I did, not on the RPF, but earlier in my Scientology staff uh, career, I was wanting to leave uh, back in Santa Barbara, and I got a sec check, and I changed my mind. So uh, so that happens, right? But if they still persist, and they want to go, and they finish the sec check, and it's all over, good. Then there's the paperwork, and non-disclosure agreements, and contracts, and they have to figure out where the guy's going to go, and, and who's he going to live with, or is he going to have, you know, where is he going to work, all this. This is given, this has been given no attention. This has been given a lot of attention. It's dependent on the time period. Sometimes people are just kicked out on the street. Other times people have been um, groomed and taken care of and like, okay, let's get you a job. And with a Scientologist, of course, got to keep the person in the community and keep them under control, right? So when you leave the RPF or you leave the Sea Org, you are not automatically declared a suppressive person. You're not automatically disconnected. Um, at least in theory, okay? I mean, when I left, they were disconnecting me right away and telling me I couldn't talk to people, couldn't have Facebook friends, couldn't do this, couldn't do that. It didn't make any sense to me. So they will run stuff on you, for sure, they will. But that's more of a cultural thing than a, than a policy point, if I can make that difference and if that's easy to understand because I, I don't want to try to belabor that. But... Um, but it's not because L. Ron Hubbard said you're to be disconnected. It's because the Sea Org culture kind of demands it because they're a tight-knit group of people who very, very, very much resent people who leave, right? They, they think that those people are scum of the earth. And Hubbard himself did say that if you leave the Sea Org, you are a quote-unquote degraded being, a DB. And this is a slang term in Scientology, a derogatory term. Um, way lower than a wog. In Scientologies, the term wog just means somebody who's not a Scientologist. A degraded being is a scumbag. And a suppressive person is an evil scumbag. A degraded being is not necessarily evil. He's just so screwed up, he can't even, you know, figure out his way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, a suppressive person is an evil bitch who's trying to destroy the world and you along with it. So that's the difference there in the mind of the Scientologist. Uh, so when you leave, no, there's no official declare unless, okay, again, I'm, 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 I mentioned I have to talk in these broad strokes because there's all these conditionals, right? Some people get sent to the RPF and the choice they're given is you're going to do the RPF or we're going to declare you a suppressive person because you screwed up so bad and we are so pissed at you that that's where you've gotten yourself. So now it's one or the other. Are you going to get declared or are you going to do the RPF, right? And, it, and that's, a, that's when you're stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea as a Scientologist. You're, you're screwed either way. 
And some people opt for the Declare, some people opt for the RPF program. And I, I, that was not the position I was in, but I observed, I definitely saw people in that position. And um, so uh, for them, you know, if you say, yeah, I'll go do the RPF program, don't declare me, and then you get six months in and you go, okay, well, this is just definitely not for me. Well, if they leave, they're getting declared. Okay. Um, now, you said, how do they physically leave? Um, okay. Uh, they just get, they walk out. You know, there, there are ways you can get out. Uh, there's always a way. I mean, it's, it's prison break kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you got to figure out where the security guards are and you got to figure out where the cameras are and you work it out. Or you blow, this happened more often, is you would go out on a trip with somebody, like to the hospital or because somebody needed something that, you know, somebody, something had to get purchased at a store for some reason. Very, very rare. More often um, hospital trips because RPFers are getting hurt all the time. So if you get hurt, let's say, or, well, if you get hurt, you got to go to the hospital, but you can't go alone. So two people have to escort you. So it's a three-person deal. When some when RPFers go off the base, they always go in groups of three, and this is so they keep eyes on each other. But, you know, you can go off to the bathroom and disappear, and you'd be gone, right? And you could do that at the hospital. You could do that on the way to the hospital, on a bus or something. So, um, you know, whatever. Yeah, however you'd want to work that out. Um, that is one way people could physically leave. Um, yeah, the RPF, you know, you mentioned uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. We already clarified it's not. And can, um, can you call someone to come and get you? No, that's not how that works. If, if, when you leave the RPF through the official channels, your entire, you know, where you're going to go, how you're going to get there, you're going to get a $500 severance pay or some kind of severance pay. I believe it was $500. I think it still is. Um, that's gone up and down. But, um, but if you officially leave, every Sea Org member is supposed to get that severance pay and some kind of setup through security as to where you're going to work, where you're going to, where you're going to live, because they don't want you ending up on the streets and being bad PR for them. It's not that they care about you at all. They just don't want the bad PR because they kicked people out on the street, and then the news media got hold of that, and they, you know, and then it was bad, bad, bad. So uh, that's basically it. That's the RPF in a nutshell, and I hope that gave you some good information and answered your questions. Patrick Gavin. I was raised Catholic and still go to church. Of course, the problems of the church weigh on me, but I still have determined to stick with a lot of the belief system. But I call myself a cafeteria Catholic. I pick and choose. I had a catering company and I had a great client, an older Monsignor in Baltimore who had family money and was quite profane and fun. He had a monthly card game at his house and I cooked for the Cardinal of Baltimore, this Monsignor, a couple of bishops and other muckety-mucks. I was friendly with Monsignor and was able to talk with him on a human level. His belief was that a major cause of the church scandals was the change in divinity school in the 60s and 70s. Training priests always walked alone with their thoughts and their prayer. In the 60s, the priests started walking together. My Monsignor says that when people get together, a feeling out process starts to emerge and bad thoughts start to get shared a confederacy of sorts. He said it wasn't the only cause, but it didn't do anything good. Of course, many young Catholics hid, quote-unquote, in the church, and since priests couldn't get married, it gave cover to gay priests in, at that time, an acceptable way. 
I've also seen marriages break up when guys slash gals in my neighborhood start walking together for exercise. Mike Pence is a nut, but he might be right in a narrow way. When people start talking, lots of stuff can happen, some of it bad. I know that Scientology is a snitching culture, but did these confederacies exist? Two Sea Org members walking around bitching about this and that. And how about your situation? Did you have a buddy that you trusted to tell your concerns about? And I guess about how many folks have left the Sea Organization because they found out that their gripes are shared. Okay, um, I, you know, I, I definitely believe that there are some problematic things in what that Monsignor was saying there because I am not really ever going to be against people talking to one another. And there are no such thing as bad thoughts. Uh, so, uh, of course, I would leave it to somebody in an, you know, authoritarian belief system to <laughs> uh, define what are good and bad thoughts. And I think a more realistic term there would be acceptable thoughts. And within a belief system or structure like the, like the Catholic Church or like Scientology, uh, or really almost any group, you're going to have thoughts or ideas or things that are unacceptable. That's according to the guidelines and mores and rules of the group, and that's every group. Um, but when it comes to controlling having those thoughts, when it comes to controlling whether or not people should or shouldn't be talking with each other about said thoughts, now you're talking about censorship. And I am never going to be in agreement with that. So I think your Monsignor has his head up his ass, but that's just me. That all being said, <laughs> I know I'm going to get stuff for that, but I just had to say that out loud. I know that there are definitely instances where people getting together and conspiring and complaining and all of that causes all kinds of trouble. I get it. But I will take that a hundred times out of a hundred rather than take the authoritarian control measures that must go in place to control that kind of behavior. I, I will never agree to those kind of authoritarian structures, because that's called thought policing. So that's where I'm coming from on that, and I hope that's clear. Because uh, I rarely say stuff that strongly, but in this particular case, I feel very strongly about this. So I wanted to address that first. And all of that feeds right into Scientology. Because I come from a culture where, a snitching culture, where authoritarian control structures are used to control that behavior. And, uh, you know, the Catholics have their problems, but they're Scientology light when it comes to mind control behavior. Scientology definitely has a lock on that. And they have all kinds of methods and techniques that they utilize to keep people from doing exactly what you described, which is getting together and bitching to one another. In Scientology, it's called natter. Hubbard used the word natter to talk about cr uh, carping criticism. Right, complaining that sounds a little strained, a little bit, you know, uh, that's natter. And in Scientology, natter is uh, criticism or is being critical. This is also how critical became a bad word in Scientology. Um, because if you're critical of something, you're carping criticism uh, of something is, is not particularly appreciated, especially when it's about Scientology or a Scientology principal or leader or person. Uh, or another Scientologist even, right? You're not supposed to be nattering about any of this group or activity. You can natter all you want about things outside of Scientology and nobody's going to bat an eye. 
but you start nattering about things in the world of Scientology and people are going to have a problem. Now, uh, now I say that, okay, so like exceptions, of course, are if you're in an auditing session and you're nattering about your boss, the auditor, knowing that natter means that you've done things bad, something bad to your boss, that's why you're complaining about him, because that's the belief in Scientology, is that if you're nattering, it's only because you committed overts against the thing that you are nattering about. So if you're in an auditing session and you're nattering about your boss, well, your boss might, might not be outside of Scientology, but the auditor's still going to be obligated to ask you, what did you do that your boss doesn't know about? Or what did you do to your boss? Or what have you done that your boss should know about? Or something, some variation of that question that will get you to cough what horrible, awful things you did to your boss that are causing you to now natter and bitch and moan and complain about him. That's supposed, what I just described is the standard handling for natter in Scientology. You go in session, you get your overts pulled out of you, right? What'd you do? When'd you do it? How'd you do it? Is that all you did? How'd you justify it? You know, and if the needle's not floating, is there an earlier similar time you did something just like that, right? And you get the whole chain of bad things that you did and you get all that talked about and the auditor's writing it all down for permanent record in your file and you're supposed to feel better as a result of getting off your bad deeds. And most people do. Um, and at that point, Hubbard said, your need to continue to natter about this person will dissipate and be gone because the cause of your natter was the overts that you committed. Well, that's true sometimes, but it is hardly true all the time. And there are many, many, many cases where you need to be nattering. You need to be complaining. When a child is sexually assaulted, that child needs to be nattering about the person that sexually assaulted him or her. When you are being beaten at your job, you need to natter to somebody about what's going on, right? Uh, but in Scientology, that is not right. That child is wrong for nattering. That employee, that, that Scientologist is wrong for nattering. They should not be doing that. They should be, you know, sort of sucking it up and dealing with it and getting their own overts off. And they should report things to the ethics section, and the ethics section will deal with it. Except the ethics section hardly ever deals with it. And as we went over earlier in this very episode, Scientology ethics has never dealt properly with, with sexual assault of any kind, especially child sexual assault within the world of Scientology. So, um, so the snitching, the, the, the standard handling does not include bringing in the, the police or law enforcement or anything like that. And that's the big, huge problem with Scientology and with destructive cults in general, because everything I just described using different words and sometimes different techniques, but often the same to the same result, other cults and groups have mechanisms in place or, or uh, protocols, I guess you could say, in place to deal with people who are bitching, moaning, and complaining. All right. All that being said, people are people, and they need relief. They need to get some steam off. They need to, you know, blow off some steam. They need to, to, to talk to other people, other human beings, and they need to be heard. They need to, you know, hear and be heard. Um, and that is such a basic need that no control system, I don't think, short of making people full-on automatons or robots, will ever be able to beat that out of somebody. So in the Sea Org, in any situation, any group situation, people do get together and they do talk. But they have to constantly police themselves because you can never 
ever fully trust anyone in the Sea Org. Not even your spouse. Yes, you can get away with some mutual natter sessions. Sometimes you can go take a little walk around the block, blow off some steam, talk about this, talk about that. But if you start making a habit out of it, it's going to get noticed. Someone else is going to notice. Or you're going to say something that's going to set the other person off somehow. They're going to go, oh, no, that was too much. Oh, shit, this whole thing is really bad. I've been sitting here letting this guy natter to me. Uh, I got to report him. I got to report her. I have to. I don't have any choice. It's been out ethics for me to sit here. We've been talking about, and she's been nattering about her seniors, and she's been nattering about her junior, or he's been nattering about, you know, some job he's got to do or some project he's going to go on. And I've been sitting there listening to it, and clearly he's got overts. And I've had my own overts, and that's why we've been, you know, commiserating. And it all comes out because, you know, this jerk-off goes and writes a whole report about the entire thing, and now you're in trouble, right? And that happens eventually to everyone in the Sea Org. At some point along the line, that's going to happen. And they're going to learn. And that's when you learn about the snitching culture and what it really means. And that's when you learn about thought policing and how it's done. And you go, oh... Because you're sitting now in front of an ethics officer, a Sea Org ethics officer who's sitting there going, what the hell, dude? You've been sitting here nattering up a storm. You got overts, and I want to know what they are. Here's a ream of paper. You better start writing. You know, and you're doing dishes until 3 in the morning uh, when you're not writing down your overts and withholds, right? That's how it happens. And after a few nights of, you know, being up until 3 or 4 in the morning and trudging in with two hours of sleep early to, to make up the damage for all your natter, you learn, I don't want to experience this again. I think I'm going to keep my thoughts to myself. And if those thoughts happen to be about criminal activities that you're seeing or participating in, who are you going to tell? You have now learned that you can't tell anyone. And you're not supposed to tell anyone. That's the whole point. <laughs> so that's how that that's how that works, right? And there are other mechanisms that, that are brought in. There, you know, there's sec checking, there's truth rundown, there is the RPF, there are ethics conditions, there's um, social ostracizing, there's, you know, there's, eventually there's disconnection if it really goes all the way. So all of these things pile in on a person, right, to force them to change their mind about their right to speak. And that's how that works. And I hope I laid that all out clearly enough. There you go. Brian the Size Spectator. In the later 90s and early 2000s, when I was working as a sales clerk at the late, great Hollywood Book City bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard, I actually recall seeing you dashing about the neighborhood. I also observed many a Sea Org member who, at the time, we referred to as pod people in their cheap blue costumes, often clustered by the Hubbard Life Exhibition building a few streets down, appearing sullen and withdrawn while quietly chain-smoking. It struck me then as now, and you've touched on this before, as to what a physically ill-kept and generally unhealthy lot the Sea Org is, given their lack of proper health care, poor diets, sleep deprivation, and overall impoverished lifestyle. To that point, I'm curious as to how end-of-life care is considered within the Sea Org. Is it reasonable to assume that they suffer shorter than average lifespans? Is there any data on the COS death rates? And how do they speak of aging? Is it ever openly discussed? Do they all expect to, as they claim Hubbard had, 
voluntarily discard the body. I can't begin to imagine what Sea Org funerals are like. Do they even have conventional fun funerals? Or just conduct hip hip hurrah parties a la LRH's thoroughly bizarre death briefing of 1986. Okay, hey Brian. Um, so, okay, end of life. Um, is it shorter, is it, is it uh, reasonable to assume they suffer shorter than average lifespans? I think it depends. Um, I don't have any census data, so I couldn't say for sure, but I think it would be reasonable to assume that, yeah. Um, I don't have any information at all on Church of Scientology death rates. They don't publish that information. I don't know that they even keep it. And they don't really talk about aging a whole lot. It's, you know, getting old, get your body getting old. It's kind of like talking about your car getting old in the world of Scientology. Your body is a possession. It's something you own. It's not who you are. You have had trillions of bodies over the course of your life as a Thetan. So, you know, yeah, it's very real to you right now in the life that you are living that your body is getting older and, the, you know, all the creaking and groaning and all of that stuff that comes into play. And Sea Org members who get old enough that their bodies really do start to get decrepit or break down do get reduced medical schedules and do get some special compensation for that. Because, you know, I mean, there are some very old people in the Sea Org at this point. And, you know, you can yell and scream at somebody all you want, but, you know, anybody feels like an asshole when they're yelling at old people. Anybody. I mean, I, I just, I never saw anybody in the Sea Org who was comfortable with that, short of a sociopath, of course. And I did see my share of sociopaths in the Sea Org. Those are not the guys I'm talking about. Those guys get off on inflicting pain and punishment, and they don't care who they're giving it to. But the run-of-the-mill Sea Org member is not a sociopath. They are an empath. They are a true believer, right? Most Sea Org members actually are on that end of the spectrum. And that's why they're Sea Org members, you know? So they don't want to hurt other people. They don't want to be running around, you know, causing pain and suffering to old people. And everybody knows that old people have limited mobility, limited uh, cognitive skills eventually. Uh, in many cases, obviously not all of them. Um, so, you know, there's problems there. And these are real physical universe problems. They're undeniable problems. They don't go away just because you wish them away really hard. So, um, so, yeah, you can push an old person for a single instance or two or three, but, you know, over time, they're just that, that, that you're just doing them and yourselves a disfavor because you're making them less able to get more work done over a longer period of time. And when that's your goal as a Sea Org member, that's what I mean by that, right? I mean, really, the older people shouldn't even be in the Sea Org. Well, hell, nobody should be in the Sea Org. Uh, okay, so do they all expect to voluntarily discard the body? Actually, they do. This was kind of funny. This made me want to answer this question. Because everybody in the Sea Org kind of secretly believes that by the time they get old enough to discard the body, and that's not going to be of any use to them anymore, they'll be at the top of the bridge, and they'll be able to do that. And they'll be this super spiritual superman or superwoman. And so, yeah, they do all have this vision of, of discarding the body. And I remember specifically one woman who said, yes... When me and my husband get to old age and, you know, uh, we've raised our child and all that, then we're going to lay down on a bed and we're going to close our eyes and we're going to go off together and get new bodies. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet. And seven years later, she was dead of cancer and her husband was raising their child as a single dad. So, you know, nice fantasy, but I never saw it happen. 
and then as far as funerals go, yeah, they actually do have fairly conventional funerals, usually because they're a family who are conventional people, not in the Sea Org. Uh, or um, they have a memorial service of some kind is actually usually what happens. Um, some Sea Org members who don't have family outside the Sea Org take, take care of this kind of thing will basically just get cremated and there will be an issue posted about their life as a Sea Org member and Scientologist and that's called In Memoriam Joe Dokes, right? Or Sally Sue or whatever and that gets posted around that kind of lets everybody know that they died and that they are appreciated for their service and they are granted a 21-year leave of absence uh, and then they're supposed to report back to the Sea Org to continue their duty in their new body, right? So that's, uh, that's kind of how that goes. Okay, it is time for Flash Answers. Ron Schiller. Charles Manson was a Scientologist, but he used it on his woman? And that is how he brainwashed? Is that true? No, it's not. Uh, Charles Manson discovered Dianetics and read it in prison after he had already done all of his brainwashing and nutty stuff and murders. So uh, the Dianetics thing he thought was interesting and he um, utilized it somehow in prison. He was doing some auditing with another person. But Scientology didn't want anything to do with him uh, for what should be obvious reasons. And I think that's about the entirety of the connection with Charles Manson there. Tyler Simmons. There are eight OT levels and eight dynamics in Scientology. Does OT1 have anything to do with the first dynamic, OT5 having to do with the fifth dynamic, and OT8 having to do with the eighth dynamic, respectively? Also, when a Scientologist completes OT8, can David Miscavige take away their OT8 status and force him or her to start at OT1 again? No, the eight, di the eight dynamics and the eight OT levels have nothing to do directly with one another in any way, shape, or form. They are not connected or related. It's just a coincidence that there are only eight OT levels that have been released for all these years, and there are eight dynamics in Hubbard's concept of, of the life uh, expansion cycle, I guess you could say, where you have individual, family, sex, groups, mankind, etc. I've done a whole video on that. You guys can check it out. Uh, and as far as um, David Miscavige taking away OT8, yeah, he can and does whatever he wants. So, of course, David Miscavige could do that to anybody anytime he wanted. Diane Ledbetter. Do you think we will ever hear Katie Holmes tell her story? Nope, I do not. And the reason I do not believe that she will ever say a word is uh, three simple letters. N-D-A. Non-disclosure agreement. Uh... Tom Cruise is, uh, this is obviously why Nicole doesn't talk either, right? I mean, Tom, somebody of Tom Cruise's stature is going to have bulletproof NDAs for his potential wife to sign and prenups and all kinds of things. Uh, and I'm sure that they had to sign stacks of legal documents in order to marry Tom Cruise. Uh, and they are not free to discuss all of that. I'm a thousand percent positive that there would be massive legal repercussions for them if they started talking real dirt about what Tom Cruise is really like. Okay, everybody. So that is our last show for 2019. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to me go on at a mad rate like this. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below here on YouTube. Uh, I always look forward to seeing what you guys have to say about my work. If you're going to be critical of my work, please do so in a respectful fashion. I do appreciate it when you guys do that. Uh, nobody likes to be criticized at all for their ideas or their work, 
but it is part of being a content creator that we get feedback from you guys. And I do really appreciate every one of you taking the time to do it. I just hope that those of you who uh, have something, you know, not so wonderful to say about my work will do so in a way that will make me want to hear what you have to say. And calling me names and insulting me and telling me, you know, that I'm an idiot are not things I'm particularly interested in hearing. So uh, that's uh, where that goes. All right, that all being said, I hope you guys have a great, great New Year's celebration and that we bring in 2020 with a bang. Uh, and I, like I said, we'll be putting that podcast up later this week about that. Talk to you later, guys. Bye-bye.